Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael. In December of 2022, Dan Faust was gracious enough to get onto the phone with me and interview for the Game Before the Money radio show, which airs Saturdays on the SportsMap radio network at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central. On this podcast will be our full interview. And it was great to have this opportunity to talk with Dan Fouts. When I first started watching football in the late 1970s, he was a quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. And the Chargers really took off once Don Coriel took over as head coach. Coriel installed the Air Coriel offense, and Dan Fouts was the master of that offense. There were great receivers as well. Charlie Joyner, Hall of Famer, he retired as the NFL's leading receiver, most career catches. A guy named John Jefferson played receiver for the Chargers for a couple of years. He not only led the NFL in receiving, but he made the most spectacular catches that you ever saw. You see guys make one-handed catches today, and it's all over social media, and that's great. But John Jefferson made multiple one-handed catches, and he did it with his bare hands. No special gloves, just the leather of the ball and the skin of his hands. Kellen Winslow, Hall of Fame tight end. Wes Chandler, also a very talented receiver in that group. The Chargers played the Dolphins in the 1981 AFC Divisional Playoffs. One of the greatest games of all time. Probably the best game that I've seen. So Dan Fouts is going to go over some key plays from that game. He's also going to talk about his father, who was the play-by-play announcer for the San Francisco 49ers. Fouts played his college football at Oregon, and a lot of good stories there as well. And of course, some of you younger listeners likely got to know Dan Fouts as a color analyst for pro and college football. So lean back and enjoy the Game Before the Money interview with Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Fouts. The first thing I wanted to talk about is um, your dad, Bob Fouts, who was a play-by-play announcer for the 49ers. What was that like growing up in, in that environment? Yeah, it was great because uh, not only did he do the 49ers, but he did a lot of uh, things around the Bay Area. And I got to go to a lot of games because of that. You were also a, a ball boy for the 49ers growing up. Yeah, he, um, you know, because in those days, uh, the players and uh, the fans really had a closer relationship. And because he was their announcer, you know, he knew everybody in the organization and he uh, helped me get the job as a ball boy for a couple of years. Was that while John Brody was quarterback or, or why? Yes. Did you? Brody was there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Brody was a quarterback then? Was there, mm-hmm. was there anything that you kind of learned from him while you were a ball boy? Well, I learned to keep uh, my distance from him when he was going off the field at Kizar. <laughs> because he was a target a lot of the times. Uh, but no, we we uh, 
we became really good friends because uh, he followed my high school career and then my college career and gave me some advice when I got drafted by the Chargers. So, yeah, I mean, I count him as uh, a friend and, and somebody who uh, was influential. And um, were there were there other sports you, you played in when you were young or, or was it strictly football? No, we, you know, we played whatever the season was. And, um, you know, summer was baseball, fall was football, winter was basketball, and then track in the spring. So we just, you know, every, everybody was the same back then. And then um, you end up going to Oregon. What were your college options and why did you choose Oregon? Uh, it was the only major school that offered me a scholarship. That's interesting because, you know, we think of you today as, you know, you probably would have been a top prospect with the arm strength that you had well we our team my high school year um we won the city championship my junior year we had 11 guys get scholarships off that team which is a phenomenal number but we were more of a a power running game so we didn't throw the ball a lot oh so that started in college then for you well yeah at at oregon and um you know it's it's interesting you're your assistant coaches at Oregon were John Robinson and, and George Seifert. That's a that's a pretty good collective of uh, assistant coaches there. Well, don't forget Bruce Snyder and uh, John Marshall, Gunther Cunningham. Um, yeah, we had great coaches, no question. Oh yeah, Gunther Cunningham was a was an NFL head coach as well. That's true. And Bruce Snyder coached at. Arizona State and a Cal. That's right. That's right. Was there anything you learned in, in college that helped you in the pros? What what did you pick up from them? Well, I learned a lot. I mean, <laughs> I yeah. had to be a quarterback uh, in a major college. John Robinson was our offensive coordinator. He was very, uh, very influential in my success. Uh, I owe a lot to Robbie. We, uh, we spent a lot of time together, worked very hard together with, with the other quarterbacks as well. And, um, you know, we had a, some good receivers at Oregon, Bob Newland, uh, Leland Glass, uh, Maud Rashad, who was more of a tailback back then, but a great receiver as well. You know, we had uh, a good offensive line and a good coach calling the plays. Yeah, and, um, you know, you had some big games in college, the UCLA game as a sophomore, you threw the game-winning touchdown with 30 seconds left. What was what was that play planned, and how did how did you execute that one? I got knocked out of the game after uh, a quarterback sneak that went awry. So Tom Blanchard came in and threw two touchdown passes to to Ahmad, and uh, so he got hurt. I went back in. And we ran the same type of play, but instead of of hooking up the tight end, it was Greg Specht, we sent him on a post and swung Ahmad out the same way we had earlier on his two touchdowns, and they all went after him and left Speck wide open. Oh, okay. They were compensating for for Rashad then. That's great. No question. No question. And it was a you know, a really good play call by John Robinson to recognize that and just alter the play slightly. And that was a remarkable year for you, for Oregon, because uh, you also led them to a victory over USC that year. 
Yeah, that was uh, that was a good one. Uh, yeah, ten to seven in Eugene, and and uh, I don't remember a whole lot about the game because it, there wasn't a lot of memorable plays in it, except our winning touchdown by by Ahmad. We did have to get a helicopter in prior to the game to blow the rain off the field, all the water off the field. That was kind of exciting. Oh, really? So it was it was really uh, soggy in that. I guess the propeller kind of helped yeah. dry it. It, it blew the uh, water to the sidelines. Yeah, it was an astroturf field, so that wasn't that big a deal. Oh wow! Did that happen often in Oregon with the rain? The only time I saw it. <laughs> wow, that is that's that's the only time I've heard of anything happening like that. Um, well, in Oregon, we improvise. <laughs> I read somewhere that you didn't have a marching band for a year too, and they hired a rock band. Do you remember that? Yeah, the rock band worked really well until the rains came, so that was the end of that. <laughs> they were all electric; they had amps and everything. They were cool. <laughs> <laughs> must have been fun. Um, so you get drafted by the Chargers in in 1973, and of course, back then there's not the big coverage like there is today. How did, how did you find out that the Chargers drafted you? I was sitting around the kitchen table in San Francisco with my parents and, um, you know, waiting for the phone to ring, basically. Just staring at the phone. <laughs> and finally it rang, huh? It finally rang, and they said, this is the San Diego Chargers. And I said, who? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I had no contact with the Chargers. Uh, throughout the uh, my senior year, I had contact with very few teams actually, but they they were not on the radar. Wow! And and you 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 were on their radar, and um, then you, you come into camp, and Johnny Unitas is is there. What was what was that like as a rookie coming in? What do you remember about showing up to camp and there's there's Johnny U. Uh, it was phenomenal. Um, just, I, I couldn't have asked for a, a, a better situation than to have a living legend uh, in the locker right next to mine and, and being able to play catch with him and after practice and being able to have a cold beer with him. Um, yeah, he was great. Yeah, everything I've heard from anyone who has played with him has said that he just the uh, consummate teammate well he was he was the greatest because of that he played every down uh he was tough great leader great innovator um just smart as hell and um willing to share a lot of information with a you know a dumb rookie like me (laughs) well like you said you couldn't have learned from anyone better and then like four or five games into the season you actually take over for him well, he, he had hurt he had hurt his shoulder and he had very little left to be you know brutally honest he would have been a two and the team was not very good so they must have flipped the coin in the coach's room and said okay heads it's spouse he's in <laughs> and and you mentioned that that he he taught you some things and and actually you know one one thing you mentioned earlier was that John Brody gave you some advice when you were were drafted. What what exactly did he tell you? 
you know, I don't remember exactly what Brody talked about, but we just things to look look forward to to be aware of that might happen, you know, not only on the field but off the field. You know, just just being a quarterback and and the language that we speak is a little bit different because of the empathy involved and the knowledge involved. But uh, both of them were really important and uh, were really good to me. Another legend comes in in 1976. The Chargers hired Bill Walsh as their offensive coordinator. What yeah, was- that was another dream come true. Walsh was fantastic. He just basically broke my game down and uh, rebuilt it from the ground up. And by that, I mean, you know, the footwork, timing, the reads involved, uh, just all the things that he wanted in a quarterback that would lead to success. And, and you know, if you think back on the quarterbacks that he worked with, you know, Greg Cook and Virgil Carter and Kenny Anderson and, and of course, you know, Montana and Young, uh, you see a lot of similarities in the way that those quarterbacks played and obviously in the success that they had. Yeah, definitely. Wow, that's that's really good. And, and that's something to that, that I look forward to watching in film, too, because now that I think about it, your footwork and Joe Montana's footwork did have some similarities to it, um, as I picture it in my head. Well... I, I take that as a great compliment because I think Montana was one of the smoothest ever. I, I think if you if you look at Anderson and Montana, you'll see a lot more similarities because they're they're just both of them tremendous athletes and and uh, very very smooth. And then also in 1976, another great partner in your career comes in, and that that was Charlie Joyner. What made him what he was as a receiver? Well, you know, he was with Walsh in Cincinnati, okay? And when uh, when Walsh came to San Diego, one of the first things he says is, he said, I'm going to get you a receiver. And the next thing I know, here's Charlie Joyner. And I really didn't know anything about Charlie. Um, but once I started working with him, I felt so in tuned with his speed and his knowledge and his ability to read defenses on the run that uh, I think really led to a lot of our success because he's, he's so smart and so aware and then so tough for a, for a guy that uh, is not very big, but his ability and his fearlessness over the middle of the field uh, where the big guys are and the traffic is and his ability to work his way into openings just just amazing. Yeah, that's what I remember about Charlie Joyner, watching him go over the middle and catch the ball with a couple of guys right there ready to hit him. He was a, really a, a typical grambling player. Uh, smart, tough, athletic, uh, just straight arrow guy that just got it done. And then... Um, Jumping to 78, Don Coryell comes in a few games into the season. What was his early message to the team there? I think they were, I think you guys, you guys were, were had a losing record at the time, but I think you ended up eight and four with him. 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think we were one and three at the time. So yeah, nine and seven that makes sense. Well, you know, he came in and uh, he just gave us an attitude, and uh, it was like a breath of fresh air uh, because you know, one of the first things he said to us in the team meeting is that people think I'm crazy to to coach you guys to to take this job because you know you're one and three, you haven't won any games in a long time. Um, and the thing is, is that I may be crazy, but we all got to be crazy to play this game. And uh, we all started laughing. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah, we are crazy. And, okay, well, let's go out and have some fun then. And he didn't immediately change the offense, but each week he added a little bit. And each time he added something, it worked. And so we were hungry for him to add and add and add and add, and he did, and and that's why we kept building on you know the success that we had. That's really neat to hear because usually you you, you think about you know the Air Coriel offense and hearing about it, you you'd expect it just to be plugged in all right away, but it was brought in in increments. It sounds like. Well, that first year, I mean, you take over middle of the year or the beginning of the year, and so um, you would be asking a lot of your players. And uh, as you as you mentioned, the, the success we had is because he did add it incrementally. Uh, but the other thing that he did is that he studied what we had done with Bill Walsh and the, the concepts of sideline to sideline short passing game. And, uh, you know, he said, we're going to use that stuff. Uh, we're going to use that and we're going to combine it with my stuff. And so now all of a sudden we have the, the beauty of the West Coast offense and the beauty of the Air Coriel offense, which stretches the length of the field. And so we had the field covered. Oh, wow. That's really insightful. Because I, I definitely remember you guys stretching the field um, from side to side, um, especially with, with short passes to the, the running backs in the flat. Yep. One of the guys that came in early in that uh, Coriel period was John Jefferson, too, who made just the most outstanding catches. Was there one that stands out to you that, that you remember? There are so many. I have pictures in my office of him making a couple of one-handed catches, which uh, no gloves on his and no stickum, just John Jefferson, and uh, he, he did make uh, a lot of phenomenal catches. That you know, for for me, obviously, it helped me, but it also it jazzed up our team and uh, and the crowd. Uh, whether even if we're on the road the crowd would see a fantastic catch and and they would be appreciative and and they wouldn't like it but they would they would see know that they saw something special this week the uh dolphins and chargers are playing and um that's really the uh one of the greatest games that i can remember is the 1981 divisional playoff uh between you and miami what was your attitude going into that game on the road? Did you expect to jump out to to a big lead like that? No, no, no. Yeah, I mean, 
we're on the attack all the time, but to get to twenty four nothing in the first quarter, that you know, we got special teams play out of that. We got defensive interception out of that. We we took advantage of our field position and uh, you know, kind of you know, knocked them back on their heels, but you don't go into a game ever thinking you're gonna do that. It was a playoff game and playoff games are special because it's uh winner go home and nobody wants to go home. So uh, they didn't want to go home, and that's why they fought back and, and played a great game. Yeah, by halftime, it was uh, 24-17 after the hook and ladder play. What did you guys talk about at halftime? Were you guys stunned, or, or were you guys just kind of like, well, we still have the lead? Uh, at halftime, you usually just want to know what we're going to do next. And so the coaches spend some time with themselves, as the players are just kind of resting. And then the last couple of minutes of halftime, uh, they get the chalkboard out and they start saying, okay, this is what we're going to run on first down, on second down, on third down, and, and just go through the game plan and, uh, you know, make the adjustments that they saw in the first half. But uh, there's very little time really to, and really pep talks don't do you any good. Uh, all players want to know is what do we do next? <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to be yelled at. They just want to know, you know, call some good plays. Now, now one of the one of the best plays that, that you ran in the second half was that touchdown pass over the middle to Winslow in the third quarter. What, what was the plan behind that? Well, you know, actually it was a, you know, a double move by Winslow. We'd, We'd thrown him a couple of out routes, and and he um, he ran a good route. He faked to the outside and then cut back to the post, and that's you know what the play called for. But the key play that was made was by John Capaletti, our fullback. Uh, his job basically was a free release to uh, go out into the flat, but he saw uh, the corner blitz, and he nailed the blitzer. And not only nailed the blitzer, but nailed him into two other guys that were rushing the passer. So a phenomenal play by Cappy to come off his route and recognize the blitz. And that gave me time to to find Winslow. Oh, wow. That is incredible. Yeah, there's there's so many. They say that football is the ultimate team sport, and that really is an ultimate example of it. Yeah, well, if you ever watch the game, and you want to look at that play, just watch what Capaletti does. It's phenomenal. And I'm definitely uh, look forward to doing that. And then you got the ball back with, I guess, about four and a half minutes left, and you guys need a tie. I guess you got it after a fumble. Louis Kelcher forced a fumble. Um, yep, yep. What's, uh, what were you telling the guys in the huddle? What was... What was the attitude like when, once you got the ball back? Well, you know, it, it's it, it, it's nothing really to say. These guys aren't stupid. They can see the clock and the score <laughs> and where we are on the field. And uh, they just want to know what the play is. And so, you know, I would encourage them. I'd say, okay, here we go. This is what we need to do. And here, here's the play. And that's the way it worked with us. I mean, again, a pep talk at that point. It's just a waste of breath. Yeah, I guess they, they have to be motivated at that point, no matter what. Oh, it's win or go home. Yeah. And and you end up hitting uh, James Brooks for a touchdown. 
Do you remember the the secret behind that play or what what the uh, what the plan was? Well, I, I do, and I, it was uh, a pass intended for Winslow. I was forced out of the pocket, and I thought I could lob it to Winslow, uh, but he was—I think he was just out of gas at that point because he was so phenomenal the whole game. And Brooks made a brilliant play. Once I escaped out of the pocket, he recognized it and really kind of paralleled me, and I didn't see him at all because I wasn't looking for him. I was looking for Winslow and you know, basically over through Winslow, but there was JB right there uh, making the catch. It was just a really – you talk about football IQ – that's what football IQ is, recognizing a situation and finding a solution. Oh, yeah. Mid-play in, 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 the, in the middle of winter, go home. Yep. Winslow, you know, of course, he blocked an extra point. He had 166 yards receiving. He blocked a field goal. Yeah, that's right. He blocked a field goal at the end. That's right. It was a field goal. That's right. Leroy Jones blocked another field goal. Oh, so you guys had two block field goals in that game. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, they say, you know, offense, defense, special teams, it takes all three. Kellen Winslow, you know, he was exhausted coming off the field. I'm, I'm sure everybody was exhausted after that game. How long did it take to recover from that game? Was it because it was so long? Did it still affect you the next week in Cincinnati? Um, I don't think so, but it was, there was a lot of travel involved. Uh, you know, when we would travel to the east, anytime we crossed the Mississippi River, we had to refuel because our plane was so small that we were flying in. So uh, both Cincinnati and Miami are across the Mississippi. So our trips were long. That's no question. Oh, wow. So So your chartered flight always had to stop for for gas mid-flight on, on cross-country trips? That's right. Wow. That is that is something that that is forgotten in football now. Yeah. Um, so you, you retired and, and you, you became a broadcaster. Was that kind of an, a natural thing because of your dad? I knew I wanted to give it a try and uh, was given an opportunity. So, yeah, he was obviously influential in, in that with his... Uh, encouragement and, and criticism and just his expertise and then uh you worked alongside keith jackson among others yeah 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 was the best game that you did most exciting would, would that have been the usc texas game with which was keith jackson's final game you know i i would uh i would have to say yes obviously uh for many reasons number one because it was Keith's last game, and we all knew it, uh, we wanted, as a broadcast team, you know, I had the same guys every week, we wanted him to go out on top and do our best to support him, and uh, he did go out on top. His, his broadcast of that game was absolutely spot on, and uh, the game itself was a classic. Well, Dan, I want to be uh, respectful of your time, and I really appreciate you chatting with me. Is there anything else that you think is important? I had, uh, you know, two great careers, and very fortunate to have worked with and played for and played with phenomenal people. It's just uh, a lucky guy. 
Thank you for listening to the Game Before the Money podcast. Be sure to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. The Game Before the Money Oral History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. You can make a donation at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions of some podcasts are available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services.